to the Women Giving a Bleep podcast for women and their advocates and allies. Yes, we're talking about you, men, women, people of any gender who are building enterprises that are changing the world for the better. We bring you the most important trends and social impact that may affect you. We give you practical advice on how to fund, sustain, and grow a successful nonprofit or social impact venture. And we answer your questions with the help of experts in the field and just by being vulnerable and sharing with you our own experience as we build our enterprises. I'm your host, Taniella Evans, the Executive Director of NABU. And this week, I'm joined by my amazing friend, Vanessa Barboni Halik, the founder and CEO of sustainable fashion brand and environmental platform, Another Tomorrow, which just launched this January. Vanessa founded the company after 15 years of Wall Street, pivoting her career to focus on social impact and sustainability in fashion. So Vanessa, firstly, thank you so much for joining me today on Women Giving a Bleep. We're so excited to have you. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, When I read your article on Vogue, which I will definitely post in the show notes of this podcast, I realized that there was something that struck me in that what you're doing at Another Tomorrow is not just, you know, launching a fashion brand, which is awesome, but actually starting a conversation. Um, And I wanted to start by just asking, you know, why does this matter so much to you? Why does environmental sustainability in the fashion industry really matter to you? Oh, such a good question. You know, I really encountered the impact of the fashion industry by accident. Um, At the tail end of my Wall Street career, I was incredibly focused on shifting gears and dedicating the next big phase of my career toward, toward purpose, really putting my energy in that direction. And it's funny because at the time, I thought I would stay in the industry and just focus on sustainable finance, where I saw such an incredible need to deploy capital differently, and I still see that. But in making that transition, I thought, you know, I should really step back and take a look at each of the major industries and try and assess really from the ground up how they were manifesting all of these massive negative externalities. And many of the industries are relatively straightforward. Oil and gas, it's pretty straightforward. Um, Logistics and shipping, it's pretty straightforward. And when I got to the fashion industry, I was just blown away. Um, I was blown away by the enormity of the impact uh, on humans, on the planet, uh, from an environmental and biodiversity standpoint, and on animal welfare. And um, I was shocked by my own ignorance. I was shocked by the degree of complexity and the extent of the damage the industry was doing. And I found it just impossible to unknow. And and I found, I felt really impotent uh, in in the context of having this information. And even as a consumer, not really having a whole lot that I felt like I could do about it. Um, You know, barring just buying less, it was an industry and remains an industry that is so far behind others in making meaningful changes to its footprint. Um, And I felt just, I don't know what else to call it other than kind of a calling to be a part of the solution to this problem. And that's really what's kind of carried me forward to today. Wow, so you really, 
you saw that problem and you thought, I just can't turn away from, from it, from what yeah. I'm seeing. And you weren't seeing the kind of solutions that you wanted to see in the space. I just wasn't. And in particular, because there is such a lack of transparency and it's very difficult to manage what you don't measure or to change what you don't acknowledge. And I saw just so much opacity um, in the industry and where there were some efforts being made, they weren't being talked about or articulated in a concrete way. And so, yeah, that was, I think, what I felt was there was just such a need for a watershed moment of, of change. Yeah, I really identify with that as a little side note. When I was starting NABU um, seven years ago, you know, it, there were so many other solutions out there that were focused on addressing, you know, the, the issue of literacy, but very few were using technology. And when they were, it was in such a way, it was, again, that lack of transparency. But in our case, in the tech sector, it was actually a completely closed system. So rather than opening up the tech and saying, let's bring everyone in, you know, there were solutions that were, were closed and everyone was doing their own thing and you could only use it on this device and you could only use it with our content. And so it was about how do we create a platform that was device agnostic and that, you know, could solve an issue. And I, I think that's so important just as I think about women um, listening to this program you know, when you're actually setting out to, to identify what it is you want to give a bleep about, there's so many things that it's like, where can you make that impact, right? And if there's someone already doing it, then maybe just get on board with them. But like what you saw was a real, real gap in, in the space. Um, but even though you saw that gap, like, was it hard to leave a successful career? I know you took a sabbatical. I mean, you must, yeah. you lo you must have loved your job, right? And, and the challenge of it. I did. Um, I did. And, and honestly, it was pretty terrifying. I think I was more scared after the fact in a weird way. I felt really compelled to make the decision. And then once I'd made it, there was there were definitely some sleepless nights of like, oh my God, what have I done? Did I just completely <laughs> torch my career? Is there no going back? And, uh, you know, I definitely had some friends who, you know, I, I think were genuinely concerned for me. <laughs> 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 I continued to sort of get a stream of text messages and emails about, oh, how about this job opportunity? How about that <laughs> job opportunity in finance? Um, which was, you know, kind of sweet in hindsight. So it was, it was hard. I won't lie. Um, it was hard. It was easy to make the call. It was hard to sleep on it afterwards. Um, but once I started really putting one foot in front of the other, um, it, it got a lot easier. It got a lot easier. That's awesome. And was taking that sabbatical, taking a break and just saying, you know, I'm just going to have this white space. Was that an important part of your process? It really was. Um, I was lousy at work-life balance. And, you know, I liked to think that I had the ability to think big picture while I was working a ton. And the truth was, I just, I just didn't have the mental or emotional energy to really zoom out. And so for me, um, the sabbatical was really, was really critical in that, uh, in that process. 
I think for people who are maybe a little bit better <laughs> at that balance, um, or perhaps if I had started meditating, you know, several years sooner than I did, you know, I might have had uh, a slightly more expansive worldview. But it proved um, it proved really essential for me, and so I think that finding that time, that mental space, however it is that you need to do it, um, is the biggest gift you can give to yourself, and is is really an investment in your future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and walking kind of mindfully into whatever yeah. is next. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's learn a bit about Another Tomorrow, um, which you kind of started ideating in, in 2018. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that so- was when I was just, on my, just starting my sabbatical. And it's, it's quite funny because when I first encountered this problem and felt motivated to be a part of the solution, the last thing that... I thought I would do is start a fashion brand. Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, especially coming from a finance perspective, I mean, it is an incredibly hard business, let's be honest. Mm, Um, And in an industry that's plagued by overproduction, the idea of starting a brand um, is somewhat counterintuitive. But what I noticed very quickly were a couple of things. One was that challenger brands in other categories started to make a real difference. Um, And Mm -hmm. I would highlight that in the food space for sure, um, in consumer products more broadly. And it really kind of hadn't happened yet in a a big way in fashion. Um, And so I thought that this idea of modeling a change could actually be quite influential. It also became really clear that fashion is so personal and individuals their relationship resides with brands. They have a real relationship with the the brands that make their clothes. Um, And so there was really a trusted relationship um, where we could be helpful. And there was frankly just a massive gap in the market of really well-made product where you weren't compromising on the quality or the design that was also made in this holistically sustainable way. So long story short, I talked myself into starting a brand. And, you know, Another Tomorrow really reflects these desires of addressing a core need for a group of customers, in this case, largely professional professional females um, or female identifying, um, that were really looking for extremely high quality, you know, lifetime pieces, Mm -hmm. but at a more accessible price point. So that was the that was the core need that this uh, that this group of people were trying to solve for. And I thought that we could do that and also develop it in a way that was totally sustainable in a holistic way from an end-to-end perspective so that this person could also live their values. So that was kind of the two main things that we were trying to solve. And so we're an end-to-end sustainable direct-to-consumer luxury brand, but we also have this platform for education um, and action. And our business model, I like to think, just reflects how you would want to start any new business today, which is using technology from a transparency perspective, using technology from an authentication perspective, and utilizing a circular economy model to make sure that anything that can be an asset is treated as an asset so that we're not massively overproducing, um, and ultimately so that we can democratize quality. So that's another tomorrow. That's so awesome. You've just kind of given us the three pillars there of, you know, what to think about as you're building a, 
a social enterprise. I mean, really any business now, like you said. Um, so, but tell us a bit about, so the name, Another Tomorrow, like why that name? I mean, it's so <laughs> cool, but. It's so funny. So the name was an accident. Um, I had the, the good luck to work with a, a wonderful friend and mentor of mine uh, early on in starting the company. And she really taught me, she'd been a CMO for a very large fashion company. And um, she really taught me about brand building and brand foundations. And she was pushing me and pushing me and pushing me about um, the deep source of, you know, what was behind the company. And so she said, you know, why are you doing this? And I said, because we're, none of us would choose the tomorrow that we're on the path for. None of us would choose that. Um, we would all choose another tomorrow. And yet this tomorrow that we're getting is being manifest, made manifest by all of our individual decisions. And she said, ah, that's your name. And I said, really? That's the name? That doesn't sound like you know, a fashion name. Um, and I kind of sat on it. Um, it was sort of in the, I mean, it's a strange analogy, but it's like, my wedding dress was the first one I tried on, but I kind of couldn't believe it. So I put it off to the side for a while and came back to it months later. And it was sort of the same thing with the name. And I got a little bit of pushback, actually, from some people in the industry who said, oh, you know, you should use your name or, you know, find a more fashion name or whatever. But it was really just, it was the truth. It was the truth of the brand. Um, and it stuck. So there you have That's it. So awesome. That's so cool. I know how important a name is. I went through that process as well with Nabu. And actually, I just said I want a really crazy name that doesn't mean anything that anyone in the world, regardless of their mother tongue, would be able to say. <laughs> and a very good friend who, you know, there are these people out there who are just like friggin' geniuses with naming companies and marketing and all of that. And, uh, and he came back with this name. And it was the same. I had to sit on it for a while. but. You know, the name is important as well as you build that out and it tells something really important about about the company. Um, so, okay, so we've got the name, we've got the, this idea and this new model. How did you find the right team to help you execute on this? Um, who were those kind of first followers that came alongside you and, and said, you know, this isn't a crazy idea, I want to jump on and, and be part of this? Yeah, it was, you know, it was so interesting because it took me a while to really convince myself to do it. And so the early phases were really very research oriented. And as a result, the team built in this kind of very organic way. So um, the first two people I brought on uh, were actually still with the team and are wonderful. Um, I brought on as, as consultants who had deep backgrounds in sustainability and apparel to really help me think through okay, I've, I've read through this in sort of an academic way and I've looked at, you know, the opportunities in the market as from a sort of a business mindset, uh, but help me understand what sustainability really means from a practical standpoint in this industry. And so uh, Tabia Soriano, who is our current um, VP for uh, product and innovation and strategy, and Natalie Goulon, who is our VP for supply chain, sustainability, and culture, they both came on as a team in that capacity very early on, really to advise me on sustainability. Um, so that was the first step. Um, as I mentioned, uh, my, my good friend helped me with the overall architecture of building a brand. We interviewed a bunch of creative agencies. Um, so they came on board. I started the process of hiring um, a designer. Um, and that was, you know, that was a remarkable thing. Um, it was important to me 
that I had somebody as a partner on the design space who had deep, deep expertise. That was my Achilles heel. I didn't know the first thing about the industry and I knew that if this was going to be a really uh, powerful company that the product had to be exceptional. And so I was introduced to Jane Chung, our creative director, uh, through a wonderful mutual friend, um, Hans Dorsenville, who's a, um, who's a creative director of one of the agencies at the time. And he just saw the magic. You know, he's just one of those people who just sees the twinkling stars, stars in the world and puts them together. And so it really just built, um, it built organically and to be moved into a production role and Natalie stayed on in sustainability. Um, and then, you know, slowly, slowly we built the team from there. So it was really, I would say, in response to what the needs were at the time. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's just been a great experience. That's awesome. I was a massive coup with your, your creative director, you know, <laughs> totally. just to get the stars aligning in that way. That's phenomenal. And, and do you have like a, a hiring process? I mean, was it just about your gut and people that you wanted to work with every day? I mean, you know, it, building teams is hard, right? And finding yeah. those people, especially at the beginning to bring into your yeah. vision, essentially. It's so true. And I think that, you know, initially coming into such a different industry, it was hard to trust my own intuition. You know, it's very easy to second guess yourself, but ultimately that's what I relied on. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, there are certain people who really helped me kind of think, think architecturally about, you know, what the core needs of the team would be. But then when it came down to finding the right people for it, it was really about both you know, expertise, uh, the desire to be part of something new and different and roll up their sleeves, as well as just culture and, you know, culture and personality fit. Um, and I don't mean that from a perspective of sameness, but rather sh the sharing of core values, but having, you know, complementary skill sets. And this was actually one of the things that I came to really love and enjoy in finance was building businesses and building teams. And so, you know, that was one, I think, skill set and and love that I've brought with me that was, you know, a nice way to transition. That's awesome. Uh, we're going to have to do a separate podcast on this whole building teams thing, because <laughs> I think that's a massive stumbling block for a lot of entrepreneurs. It has been for us at different times in our company. And so I think that would be awesome. But um, yeah, but tell me, so how did you actually fund this? I mean, was it self-funded? Did you go out and get investors? How did you actually fund the, fund the organization? So I, um, I self-funded this, which is, you know, I have to say I'm, I'm grateful for having been in that position and I appreciate that it's very rarely the case. Um, it's also not something that, frankly, I, I advocate. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, you know, it's... Um, it's funny, when I came out of finance into this industry, you know, I was so used to this mentality of independence and, you know, going it alone and, you know, rolling up your sleeves and pulling it all off kind of by yourself. And I have come to appreciate so tremendously what um, collaborative efforts bring to the table. And I think that mm -hmm. investors can do exactly the same thing. And, you know, some of the things that I've put together, you know, really belatedly in terms of like board and fundraising strategy and all of that, I can really see the benefits of having done it even sooner. Um, and so, 
you know, I, I was very intentional in not bringing venture money into the business at an early stage, particularly because in its, at least in its historical context, um, I didn't feel like at the early stages of the company that we would be particularly aligned in terms of incentives. And from my perspective, particularly in terms of like cost optimization and growth optimization and bringing it initially to market, I wanted to make sure that the values that were really underpinning the entire operation were never on the negotiating table. Mm. And that we could really prove the concept. Um, but I think there are a lot of ways to, you know, start companies and, and uh, you know, raise money effectively without necessarily going the institutional route right at the beginning. Okay. So is your opinion now that there are investors out there who share values and so for, for other entrepreneurs starting their social ventures, that there are those investors out there who will accept, you know, a lower profit margin if, if the values of the company are maintained? That's a great question. Lower profit margin, I'm not so sure. But, but more sustainable growth trajectory, I think yes. You know, I think that um, there's definitely been a, a shift in understanding that a lot of the values underpinning social ventures are actually highly complementary and indeed in sync with, you know, higher probabilities of success. Um, right. A lot of the biggest failures you've seen in the market are, are governance failures. Um, and so I think that there's been a real rethink of that and a, a general shift in, in the landscape. So I think that's really positive. Um, I also think that people are looking a lot more at profitability versus growth. Um, because growth at any cost, I think, can really run counter to a lot of social enterprises. So, yeah, I'm, I'm much more sanguine. I also really suggest um, utilizing some of the new methods of fundraising, whether that's crowd, uh, you know, crowdfunding or things of that nature, that particularly for businesses that rely on shared values and, and have an aspect of being a movement. I think that those sort of just, and it's a, it's a way to kind of do so in a way that distributes risk. So I, I really think that there are a lot of modern tools for fundraising that also don't rely on concentrated pools of capital at the early stage of a company. Yeah, totally. Actually, um, we're doing another podcast uh, that we just recorded on how the bleep do I fund this? Um, and one <laughs> of the models we talk about is, uh, is, crowdfunding um, at NABRI, we actually raised $100,000 on Kickstarter when we started, which uh, was absolutely terrifying, having never raised money. And you know, Kickstarter, it's like, if you don't raise it all in the time frame, you don't get any of it. Um, but like you said, it kind of, it, it gave us that seed capital of just friendly, friendly seed capital to get yeah. started and try and test and mess up and try again. Um, and, and it's also validation that this is something that the community wants, that the world wants, if they're willing to, to pay for it and invest in it. So that's really cool. Um, so let's talk a bit about imagining this another tomorrow um, for fashion. And, you know, we, we've talked very briefly about the model of another tomorrow and that that end-to-end -end model. And I really encourage anyone listening to this to dive into the resources that I'll post in the show notes to learn more because I've never come across such a comprehensive approach to the question of, you know, env environmentally sustainable 
fashion and really like you go so in depth in understanding that and just in our conversations I've learned so much about what I thought was maybe sustainable fashion perhaps isn't um and so it's been great learning um but one thing that you know you mentioned on the other side is that another tomorrow is also a platform and that's what started this podcast you know and me wanting to, to have this session with you because I was like, wow, you're getting your customers to sign petitions. This is new. <laughs> this is different. Like, what is this? So let's talk about that platform. Like, what do you want to build with that? And what, you know, are you, are you hoping to build a movement as well around this, um, this space? I really am. You know, I, I think in, in starting the company, it came from a place of just how difficult it is to live your values. And I think so, mm-hmm. so much of the time people's values um, stay at the dinner table conversation and we've got to unleash that potential, but that requires a tool set to do so. And so I just look at our platform as a way to make that a lot easier. And so the petition side of things is, is very much that. So it's allowing people, you know, to, raise their voice by doing something simple and aligning with an issue that they care about and making sure that, you know, that voice ultimately is amplified to their representatives. It's something that's, you know, quite challenging to do. And a lot of people, you know, don't have the time or the knowledge of how to access that. So it's just making it easier um, and taking feedback from people about what they really care about. And then the magazine portion of it, um, is really an education tool, much like the sustainability section is. And when I first did the customer research, I found that the people that I encountered that that understood um, something about sustainability and fashion in a way that actually changed the way that they made decisions, oftentimes learned about it by accident. And they learned about it um, through really high quality narrative storytelling. So maybe it was a long form article in the New Yorker that they happened upon by chance or, you know, a deep read in the Atlantic or the New York Times. Um, but really, you know, sustainability is, is such a local phenomenon. It's such a complicated phenomenon. And when people learn about it in this enjoyable way that really unpacks the complexity of it, it connects in such a different, in such a different manner. So that's what the magazine is for. So it's really... It's a platform for education and action um, and hopefully one that's joyful and not heavy um, because I think that for really for us to, to change anything, we have to be inspired by it, not burdened by it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I think we're past the kind of like, you know, poverty porn stage of just shocking people with images yeah. and trying to shock them into action. People want to be inspired and, t- and taken on that journey um and you do you so in your vogue op-ed you do talk about workers in bangladesh being thrown into poverty you know due to covid19 and just the link between fashion and poverty um what maybe we can just touch on that for our listeners who are not aware so they'll be hopefully inspired to learn more from your magazine and the platform but what is the human cost of fashion at a you know at a broad level and I know that's a huge question but no it's a big one but I and I think it's it's been it's one of the most frustrating things for me because it's been happening for hundreds of years 
and it perennially pops up on the front pages of newspapers and then gets pushed back down and, and, and sort of out of sight. And really, I think fundamentally what's happened is the system itself is economically unsustainable. And so in order to make any kind of a profit margin, it really has relied upon exploitation of both environmental resources and human resources. And so when you think about the vast number of people employed by the fashion industry, as little as 2% of them are actually paid a living wage. And it's, it's such an out of sight, out of mind situation where, you know, it used to be in the United States that the majority of our clothes were made here in the US. And then over the last 30 years, you know, supply chains have globalized. And, and, and I'm not saying that from a perspective of I think that there's something wrong with global supply chains, but it's somebody else's problem. It's somebody else's issue. It's far away from the end consumer. Um, and it's been, you know, in the best interest of a lot of big companies to keep it that way. And so really you had a system that was already fraught with so many issues where so many of the people working on it were barely getting by to begin with. And so they've come into this crisis from a, from a point of extreme vulnerability. So, you know, it's, it's unsurprising, sadly, um, that the effects have been so dire because, you know, the safety net was so poor to begin with. Um, and I just think that as we have this opportunity to reassess what the future looks like and really rebuild it, there are no excuses to allowing it to continue. And um, there's been a lot of talk in the industry of, oh, well, you know, if they pay a living wage, then I'll pay a living wage, but I can't do it if they won't do it because then I'm not competitive. And, you know, we just have to take that off the table um, and reset you know, what expectations are for corporate behavior. Yeah. And why has this been so slow to change? I think it's largely been a transparency problem. Um, and that's been something where I think the industry can really pass the buck or they've tried to, because what happens is um, the industry is not vertically integrated in most cases. So what I mean by that is most companies, um, don't own their manufacturers. They use third-party manufacturers. And so it's very easy for them to say, uh, well, I don't employ that person. I don't know what they get paid. You know, um, that's for them to deal with. We go and we audit it and that's about it. So there's really been this shifting of responsibility. So I think going forward to change it, um, you know, we really need to say to these companies, irrespective of who owns that manufacturing facility, you're responsible for ensuring that the workers are paid a living wage. Yeah. And I, you mentioned in your op-ed as well, which was just like, so kind of really hit me, which was that because it's not a health issue, you know, because it doesn't actually impact us, right? So yeah, we will change from dairy milk to soy milk because it's better for us. Like it just happens to be better for the environment also, but well, that's arguable, but anyway, um, but, you know, with, with fashion, with our clothes, there is no benefit, right, to, to choosing fashion that is more ethically and sustainably made. So that, that really hit me home as well. And is there any way to, to kind of, I guess there's not, right? There's no way. There's no real <laughs> built-in incentive. So that, yeah, I guess that's I mean, why you, you have education built in, right, to, to your platform. So. I mean, I, I think that... Um, 
you know, when it comes to fashion, you can make the case that from like a dye and like toxicity perspective, you know, it's, it has an impact. Um, or you could say that, you know, the microplastics problem that ultimately ends up in water and fish, et cetera, has a health impact at some stage. But yeah, I mean, that was exactly the point that I made. It was, and it's why it's been such a hard sell historically. It's why organic food has been an easier sell. It's why clean beauty has been an easier sell and why fashion has been so hard. Um, but it's also why I think the current moment is so powerful because I think that what's happened with COVID-19 is it's taken all of these people who are so essential in our, in our everyday lives in so many capacities and it's made them seen and respected. And I think it's reestablished that sense of respect and connection that I hope that we carry with us. And fundamentally, I don't think, anyone would want their clothes to be made the way that most clothes are made. They wouldn't choose that. And so with the knowledge um, of what actually is going on behind the scenes, I hope that people will start to be educated and make different choices because I do believe that people want to put their money, you know, against things that they, that they really value. Yeah. It's so awesome what you're doing because it's not like I, I I'm going to do a piece as well on a social entrepreneur versus a systems entrepreneur. And what you're actually doing is changing the system. And, you know, we've, we've been very focused, I think, in the social impact space on individual social entrepreneurs who are, you know, changing a particular area. And it's about the social entrepreneur and the good they're doing. But I think that systems entrepreneurs like you are looking at the system and seeing all of the pieces and how they interconnect and how we need to change the whole thing. I mean, it's broken. It's kind of what I hear you saying. And broken. so the question is, how do we, how do we imagine another tomorrow? How do we fix that? I love that. Oh my gosh. I'm like obsessed with your name now. This is so cool. Um, but you know, it really relates to me and I think a lot of other, you know, people driving, social impact organizations where the impact is sometimes felt either far away, far down the, the supply chain or far into the future. Like at Nabu, our focus is on literacy. literacy the impact of literacy is multi-generational. You know, yes, if a child is literate, she has fewer children, she's less likely to be forced into you know, child marriage, sexual exploitation, economic vulnerability, all of these factors that, that, that we all want to solve, but they start with the building blocks and, and a world where every child has access to education. But it's historically been very hard. You know, our sustainable development goal, which is number four, which is equitable and quality education, is one of the most underfunded um, even though everyone agrees that it's important, but it's so underfunded because the impacts are not felt immediately. It's not like immunizing a child, you know, where it's immediate and it's cheap, you know. It's, I think it's a couple of cents to immunize a child in India and we do it and then we eradicate a disease, you know, three years, five years later. Um, so, yeah, it's also just that shift in thinking really is a whole society of of how to create a different system um in the fashion industry which i think is why this is so powerful um so if you were to kind of and you talk about this in in the um in the piece but what could i suppose what are three things that that fashion brands could do that would have the biggest impact on people and planet 
I think the first thing is actually transparency. I think that uh, we have to shift the standards on how we communicate. Um, and that I think is ultimately going to lead the majority of the change. So, you know, you're lucky if you know where a garment was even made, even the country of origin. And so I think that um, individual brands and companies need to own uh, transparency about how their products are made, whether their workers were paid a living wage, whether they directly employ them, um, you know, or not, and just take ownership of their decisions. Because right now it's that opacity that really allows them to kind of pass the buck. Um, I think that, you know, with knowledge, you can make decisions with empathy and therefore, you know, looking at all of those decisions and saying, wow, you know, what is the choice between organic cotton and uh, regular cotton. You know, once you actually are able to measure that and understand it, you make a different choice by and large. And then fundamentally, it's making much higher quality, fewer things and operating a circular model because the scale of the problem can shrink almost immediately just by virtue of making things that last longer and are, you know, kept around and recycled and kept out of, kept out of landfills and require far less resource use. Mm. And what can we as individuals do? You know, we talked a little bit about clothes rental. And I know, you know, <laughs> that's something that's becoming like more vogue, I feel like, with my friends, you know, to, to yeah. be jumping on that train, especially if maybe you can't afford those higher pieces, you know, more expensive pieces. But then is it about also just thinking about saving more for, for higher quality and buying less? Yeah, I'm, I'm a personal big fan of resale. Um, it really does come back to that, you know, treatment of, of clothing as an asset. Um, so I, I like that a lot. It was kind of the first stop of my sort of sustainability journey. So, you know, less is more, fewer, better things. Um, if you can buy secondhand, I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, I'm a big believer that the questions that you ask of the companies that you buy product for are extremely powerful. So just taking 30 seconds, 45 seconds to just shoot a DM or an email to a brand and say, hey, you know, did you pay your, your workers a living wage when this was produced? That question is really powerful. And even if they don't know the answer, um, it will spark a dialogue internally and it really empowers those stakeholders at any company who feel passionately about that to be able to say that their customers care. That's so awesome. Well, we can all do that. Definitely get on oh. and DM some people. 100%. That's <laughs> easy. Um, okay, so as we just wrap up, um, it's been so awesome talking to you. And, you know, I just think about all the other women out there who are building their enterprises what advice do you have for them who want to you know follow in your footsteps and maybe they're successful women who want to change things as you call it who want to redefine the social contracts um, but maybe don't know how to get started and how to do the pivot that you did from um, which I think you you know you mentioned was scary but I can't even imagine um, you know, how, how do they do that and how should they get started and what advice would you give them as they're walking on their journey? I mean, I would say just start. And that doesn't mean give up everything else that you were doing. You know, I, I don't mm. think that that's necessarily um, a required first step by any stretch, but I would say 
just get started. Um, movement begets movement. And I've just been blown away by the generosity of other women in their totally selfless help of me. And so just start the conversations, ask for help, um, and you'd be amazed, you know, what, what happens. I was so afraid, I think, at the beginning to ask for help, to reach out, to acknowledge the enormity of what I didn't know. And the more you just do it and get started and start building those relationships, I mean, the positive momentum is just huge. And I think everyone will be surprised by where it takes them. It might be a different place than they thought. Um, but I really encourage just um, killing the inertia and getting moving. I love that. Thank you so much, Vanessa. This has been awesome. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Another Tomorrow, you can go to their website, anothertomorrow.co. Um, thank you so much for joining us at Women Giving a Bleep and listening. You can follow us on Instagram um, at nabu.org. And you can also email us at womengiving at nabu.org. Tell us if you like this episode you want us to do more on fashion if you want us to do more on funding who you want me to interview next um and i will you know be dming them as well let us know because i really want to build out this podcast so that it's helpful to other women as you go about building your enterprises so drop me an email um thank you so much vanessa you're awesome thank you so much for having me it's such a pleasure <laughs>